You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we discuss and refute some of the wilder and more egregious claims made by famed Stalinist apologist and truth denialist Grover Fur. Fur's work came to our attention a few episodes back when we talked about the rise of neo-tankyism on the internet. So for this episode, we invited on a historian of Stalin-era USSR, Leslie Rimmel. She will join us for our main segment today and set the record straight on a few key issues. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In a few moments, we'll be debunking apologist and denialist claims about Stalin with historian Leslie Rimmel. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. So for our current events section this episode, we're going to be talking about two pieces that were recently published asking how and to what extent the U.S. would need to engage in a process of de-Trumpification, um, assuming Joe Biden wins the election in November. The first piece is by John Pfeffer, and it's called The De-Trumpification of America. And the second piece is by Paul Rosenberg, and it's called On the De-Trumpification of America, it definitely won't be easy, but it must be done. John Pfeffer asks the question, let's assume that Donald Trump loses the upcoming election, and let's assume he agrees somehow to, to leave office. There will still be Trumpism. What happens then? Can this country be de-Trumpified? And if so, how? So Pfeffer points out that the base loves Trump, but they're not true believers in Donald Trump as a person. But the ideology of Trumpism has been there before Trump. It has to do with racial and sexual anxiety, hatred of government, and and experts uh, opposition to cosmopolitan internationalism and it's not so easily rooted out and if uh, Trump loses and Trump leaves even assuming that the Trumpites are going to dig in their heels just as we saw with the Tea Party after Obama's election. So what Pfeffer does is to look at previous instances of something like de-Trumpification. Reconstruction in the U.S. after the Civil War, denazification in Germany and debothification after the deposing of Saddam Hussein in, in Iraq. And he says, look, certain things went wrong. What kind of lessons can we draw uh, with respect to whether and how we can de-Trumpify the United States? Looking at Reconstruction, basically, Pfeffer says, Reconstruction didn't work because it was defeated by a counter-revolution having to do with Democratic Party uh, at the time. Uh, and the lesson to be drawn is that, quote, today's Republicans, the equivalent of the Northern Democrats of the post-Civil War era cannot be allowed to persist in their current incarnation as a vehicle for Trumpism. Today's Democrats and chastened Republicans would have to work to make that party, the Republicans, a far less extreme force in American politics, abandoning Trump and reclaiming Lincoln. Uh, and he says this is the exact opposite of the approach that Obama tried. Uh, Obama said, let's look forward instead of looking backward. Let's not prosecute George W. Bush. And what we saw 
law was the Tea Party and it does complete intransigence. So it says, look, Obama was just wrong here. With regard to the debathification in Iraq, Pfeffer says, well, we're not as far down the road of pathology in the U.S. as they were in Iraq because Saddam Hussein had totally institutionalized his rule over a very long period. We don't have that. Most of the uh, U.S. government is is not fully Trumpite in an irredeemable way. And then he says, except for the courts, except for the judiciary, we've got a lot of federal judges, we've got the Supreme Court, and so forth. And he doesn't have much in the way to recommend, but he notes a proposal of uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island that would make it illegal for judges to be members of the Federalist Society, which is the group that's behind most of the recommendations so-called to Trump, point this person, okay, that person, uh, Trump's uh, Supreme Court picks are approved by the, the Federalist Society, uh, and so forth. And then uh, Pfeffer looks at denazification, uh, the Nuremberg trials after World War II, and says, look, wouldn't it be great if the Democrats were just to hand over Trump to the International Criminal Court and allow them to prosecute him for international crimes, but that ain't going to happen. So he says it's going to be up to the American courts to charge and convict Trump, and that can be done under the RICO Act, taking Trump and his top associates and prosecuting them as basically racketeers, mobsters taking the, the, the Trump organization and, and prosecuting it as a, a criminal enterprise. Uh, and he says putting Trump on trial could effectively delegitimize Trumpism and prevent a second round of it from occurring. I mean, just show the toxicity and the unacceptability of it. But finally, Pfeffer says it's imperative to separate the legitimate grievances of Trump supporters from the illegitimate ones. And, you know, yeah, they're racist and misogynist and xenophobic, but there, there's good people on both sides, and they got some uh, legitimate uh, grievances. So what we need is something that also addresses the legitimate grievances of the Trumpite base. And then we get a response to this from Paul Rosenberg, and I had trouble, I do have trouble really understanding what Rosenberg's argument is, and to the extent that I understand it, um, I got a lot of questions about it. But a lot of it is uh, based on interviews that he did with uh, experts, one Ian Hughes, uh, who's the author of Disordered Minds, How Dangerous Personalities Are Destroying Democracy, and another psychological take by therapist uh, Elizabeth Mika, maybe it's pronounced Micah, who contributed a chapter to the very important book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, uh, arguing that this is a severe case of uh, psychopathology. So, with regard to Hughes, and Rosenberg relies the most on Hughes, Hughes says, if you look at the historical record of these cases that Pfeffer has pointed out and so forth, Hughes says, nations seldom learn from their descent into pathocracy. And he argues that because of that, a more limited, targeted approach is better than one that tries to change everything at once. Pfeffer is saying, you know, let's like do a clean sweep. Hughes is warning this doesn't work for some reason reason, and a more limited targeted approach is preferable. And that seems to be what uh, Rosenberg himself is uh, advocating as well. And one key moment of this article by Rosenberg is to note what took place in the denazification in Germany. And he says correctly that the idea that Nazi crimes were the work of a handful of evil leaders was widespread for decades, you know, just a few bad apples. Uh, and this only ended, quote, thanks largely to one man, the German Jewish lawyer and social democrat Fritz Bauer. And he 
prosecuted low-level participants in Nazi, Nazi atrocities, people who had been active at the low levels in Auschwitz, in the police, low-level judges who had sentenced uh, resistance leaders and Jews, doctors uh, participating in euthanasia, rank-and-file surgeons. Uh, and Rosenberg says, without Bauer's tireless efforts, Germany would probably never have faced up to its past. As it was, that took decades to accomplish. And he then quotes Hughes, saying that what's the lesson to be drawn from this? Few countries have attempted to, and no countries have succeeded in the immediate depathologizing of society following a period of tyranny. And it was misguided to try that. An aggressive attempt at detrumpification, trying to drive a stake through the heart of Trumpism, uh, is not a desirable course. And he says, this doesn't mean doing nothing, Hughes says, but keep in mind, the vast majority of Trump supporters are not violent. They will accept that Trump is defeated, even as they organize and campaign for the election of someone who will pursue similar policies and similar means in 2024. And the only real pushback to this that I see in the whole article is a passage where he, Rosenberg, quotes Elizabeth Mika, Micah, the other psychologist, and she addresses this issue of reconciliation. You get this all the time. You had it in South Africa, Peace and Reconciliation Commission and so forth. What about a program of trying to reconcile the country to overcome the polarization? And she says, Trumpism is an amalgam of grievances that, although fortified by racism, go far beyond it. It is not as much a problem to solve or a rift to heal as a fundamental clash of values. There is is no reconciliation to be had between the psychopathic lack of conscience and our recognition, respect for, and desire to live according to higher values. Choosing higher values, however, is the right path. Uh, but then Rosenberg takes us back to Hughes, who says, Pathocracies live on chaos and division. To destroy a pathocracy, tensions must be reduced, hatreds ameliorated, and reason and care must again become the foundations of society, which sounds to me like, you know, choose reconciliation. Well, I think these pieces are very interesting. They give one a lot to think about. I wonder if this this posing of the question as like this choice as to how e extreme the and aggressive detrumpification should proceed. I wonder if some of that question will um, like the answer will be forced upon Joe Biden if he's somehow able to win, and that would be because it's very unlikely that Trump is going to go quietly, and there will probably be a power struggle that happens in November, um, and it might involve different factions within the U.S. government um, and, and, and civil society, obviously, as well. Um, and if Joe Biden is able to come out on top of that power struggle, his hand might be forced to take an aggressive stance um, against Trump's allies in the government. Um, you know, he sort of has this image of the smiling friendly senator who's willing to reach across the aisle and um, make friends with Republicans like the good old days. Um, but, you know, the reality might just force him into a very different position. And, you know, one thing to be 
one thing that can be said from Joe Biden is he he knows how to be a chameleon and, and shapeshift with the times. Yeah, if it comes to that, I, I think he's lost. But yeah, you're right. I mean, his official line is reach across the aisle. We can work with them to a limited extent. Uh, I, I think recent events have shown him that that's really a thing of the past. He might keep saying that, but that's just an election slogan. I think it's increasingly clear and we're getting you know fairly mainstream people now seriously talking about the problem not being just trump and it not being the economic anxiety of the so-called white working class but trumpism and the fact that we're getting that recognition understanding that this is a deep long-standing problem and that trumpism needs to be rooted out i mean that's all to the good and i think that that's going to penetrate biden campaign a biden administration if, if if we have it. But still in all, we're getting the split between, oh, well, let's go slow versus let's root these people out once and for all and drive a stake through the heart of Trumpism, which is gives a new meaning to the idea of Trump stakes. I mean, frankly, I don't understand the go slow argument at all. Basically, we have the notion that, okay, if you look at three data points, because that's what we've got here, it's it's, it's anecdotes, right? It's, it, there's not a lot of historical examples. But if you look at debathification, you look at reconstruction, you look at denazification, they all had problems, they all had didn't succeed or totally failed and so forth. You know, but why? Well, in the case of reconstruction, it was because of an opposition to reconstruction that was allowed to become the dominant power. I mean, white supremacism. So what lesson do you draw from that? That we should go slow or that you be have to be more aggressive and, and don't uh, engage in any compromise with these people until this is totally rooted out? I, I think it's obvious that it's the latter. Or if you take the thing that the guy he was quoting, Hughes talks about, okay, denazification. Well, the Allies wanted a, a West Germany to be a good partner to fight the Cold War. And so they allowed a lot of Nazis to be crawling all throughout the West German society and government and so forth. That's what kept Nazism, kept it going for a very, very long time. It seems to me obvious you need a more uh, forceful, aggressive, thorough cleansing of, of the society and the government and so forth. And what Hughes points to is, well, it took this lawyer, this Jewish lawyer in, in, in Germany, long time to prosecute low-level Nazis and to get therefore consciousness that this was not just a few bad apples at the top. Right, it took a long time. We can't be assured of immediate success within six months a year, but that doesn't mean that to get that success, you go slow and have a relaxed attitude or a compromising attitude. It means that even if you have a forceful, aggressive campaign, it is not assured of success, in particular immediate success. Yeah, I agree. These people are a total threat to liberal democracy and to the safety of other people, and they need to be rooted out and stopped at all points. I mean, just last night, this crazy QAnon conspiracy woman, Marjorie Taylor Greene, won her Republican primary in Georgia and looks headed to be a Republican congresswoman from Georgia uh, this year. She, you know, she's a QAnon believer, which QAnon has been labeled a domestic terrorist ideology by the FBI, but it has now Kind of followers in the U.S. Congress, and I don't know what you know they're planning to do. They're going to like scour the halls of Congress, trying to find what they believe are satanic pedophile chambers hidden somewhere in the basement or something. But you, you can't reach across the aisle to these people. They're they don't they don't think rationally, and they're um, very dangerous. Yeah, and in terms of the the 
consciousness issue. I, I really did appreciate in the Rosenberg article that he did quote Elizabeth Mika or Micah, I don't know her name, and saying, this is a clash of values, psychopathological values versus decent human values, and there is no reconciliation here. It's, it's not that these people misunderstand or are just acting out on legitimate grievances. They're fundamentally four different things, and what they are for is an immediate and fatal threat to us, okay? And we've, we've seen that. I mean, and we're, we're talking about putting people in cages, we're talking about the police murders, we're talking about what they did to Puerto Rico, and now we're talking about maybe 200,000 people in the U.S. who are dying because of this nonsense. So it's an immediate threat to us, and to say, don't respond to this threat as if it's a threat, but a political disagreement, so let them continue to try to vie for power and come back in 2024. How long can society continue with, with these people threatening us and putting us in dire fear at every moment. We're, we're absolutely frightened all the time. This is not living. So, I mean, yeah, I think the power of the Republican Party needs to be smashed. I think it's really legitimate to think about declaring the Republican Party to be a domestic terrorist organization and treating it accordingly. And, you know, you allow differences of political opinion, but here we're not talking about differences of political opinion. We're talking about immediate harm and, and and so I, th I, th I think that we really have to consider what these people have done and what they're capable of and, and, and willing to do and to, to understand that self-defense is really important. It's, it, this is not a political discussion. This is a matter of self-defense. You know, I mean, even if you don't say declare the Republican Party a terrorist organization, even if you just say put maximal pressure to try to make sure that the Trumpites are defanged and maybe never Trumpers uh, get control of the Republican Party and so forth, even if you say something, you know, kind of wishy-washy like that, at least that's saying you got to, like, dismantle any hope that these people have of getting political power from now on. That, that seems to me to be the minimal goal, and I'm not understanding how anybody can cannot see that. It, it seems to me so obvious. Well, that was a somewhat longer than usual current event section, and up now our main segment, an interview with Leslie Rimmel. We're very pleased to have on the podcast today Leslie Rimmel. Uh, she's a professor at Oklahoma State University in the Department of History, where she specializes in Russian, Central Asian, and modern European history. And she will be discussing with us the Stalin period in the USSR, and in particular what she thinks about what Grover Fur has to say about that. Leslie, you got your PhD from the University of Pennsylvania, Penn, and you wrote your dissertation on a topic that's very closely related to something we'll be talking about in connection with Grover Fur, who basically denies that Stalin played a role uh, in the mass repressions in the 1930s in the USSR. What, what was your dissertation about? Well, it was actually about ordinary people at that time, or, you know, people in the city of Leningrad, as it was called then. It's back to its name of St. Petersburg. And I wanted to see or take, take a measure of how people were reacting to different policies that were coming down. 
down? And did they support them? Did they not support them? How could you even tell? Because there certainly weren't just, you know, the usual kind of surveys that you could do. And so you had to kind of really triangulate to find out um, what people were thinking. But I was very fortunate to be doing my research at a time when the archives were very open. It was just wonderful. That helped quite a bit because we would get reports on what people were saying. And then, of course, you still had to decide, well, is this made up or or did they really say this? And you had to use, you know, a lot of judgment to see what seemed to be a reliable statement. And there were, you know, people who were listening in all the time. So some of the statements maybe weren't that trustworthy. Well, Leslie, thank you for being on the podcast today. The, the reason we wanted to have you on the podcast today was because we've done several episodes now on this phenomena of the rise of neo-tankyism today, um, sort of these self-radicalized youth who, in their search for alternatives to the status quo, have found themselves in the company of radical apologists for Stalin. Uh, we interviewed two young people a few months ago who talked about their journey through all sorts of vulgar Stalinist apologetics before they sort of thought their way out of it and found the real marks. Um, but this was a surprise to us, Andrew and Ann and I. We didn't realize this phenomenon was out there. We don't hang around all these corners of the internet where people are sort of self-radicalizing like that and reading crazy Stalinist apologists like Grover Fur and filling their heads with all sorts of like lies, basically. And that leads us to Grover Fur, who, after years of existing on the fringes of the lunatic left as a Stalinist apologist, has now found himself a minor celebrity in this strange echo chamber of young Stalinist leftists on the internet. And this was all new to us, so we had to do some of our own research. This is probably where I should say a thank you to Van Suwall, who did a lot of research for us and about sort of the more extravagant claims Grover Fur has said. So that's why we asked you here today, Leslie. Um, the conversation does require a little more setup than our normal interviews. We need to sort of lay out for our audience who Grover Fur is. So, Andrew, who is Grover Fur? Uh, he's a professor of medieval English uh, at Montclair State University in New Jersey, and he's very closely associated with a group called the Progressive Labor Party, which is sort of an unreconstructed Maoist organization. He's written many books just to give you a flavor for the kinds of things that he's interested in. It's essentially to tell us Stalin was, you know, just a peachy keen guy. One book is called Khrushchev Lied, in, you know, his secret speech denouncing Stalin. Esov versus Stalin, the truth about mass repressions and the so-called great terror in the USSR, uh, the fraud of the Dewey Commission, and the mystery of the Katyn massacre, the evidence, the solution. Fur has dismissed, quote, Soviet studies in the West, close quote, as simply, quote, propaganda with footnotes. From out of our research, we've selected issues that are prominent in Fur's work. So one of the things that Grover Fur claims is that Stalin was not responsible for the mass repression in the late 30s in the Soviet Union. Fur alleges that in his famous 1956 secret speech, Khrushchev made 61 accusations against Stalin. Fur claims that he investigated all 61 accusations and that in his book, Khrushchev Lied, he was able to prove that 60 of them are demonstrably false. 
He says that he could not confirm or disconfirm the remaining one. Uh, the fifth of these so-called lies was Khrushchev's allegation that beginning in the second half of the 1930s, the practice of mass repression through the government apparatus was born. Uh, mass repression was at first unleashed against what Khrushchev called enemies of Leninism, Trotskyites, Zinovievites, Bukharanites. But later, Khrushchev says, it was also unleashed against what Khrushchev called many honest communists. Although Fur characterizes this whole statement as a lie, he does not deny that Nikolai Yuzhov, head of the secret police, the NKVD, from 1936 to late 38 was responsible for mass repression. Instead, what Fur, uh, instead what troubles Fur is Khrushchev's claim, also from the secret speech, that Yuzhov was acting on behalf of Stalin, not leading some rogue operation. Khrushchev stated that without Stalin's orders and his sanctions, Yuzhov could not have done this. In response to this allegation, Fur argues that Yuzhov's actions were indeed a rogue operation and in fact part of a more, quote, widespread rightist Trotskyist series of anti-government conspiracies. And he writes, quote, all the evidence we presently have points to the existence of a widespread rightist Trotsky series of anti-government conspiracies involving many leading party leaders, both NKVD, chiefs Yagoda and Yuzhov, high-ranking military leaders, and many others. Broadly speaking, this is more or less the picture drawn by the Stalin government at the time. There is a lot of circumstantial evidence to suggest that Khrushchev himself may well have been a participant in this right Trotskyite conspiracy. End quote. The evidence that Fur refers to here consists principally of confessions made by Yuzhov and Mikhail Frenovsky, Yuzhov's second-in-command, that were first published in 2006. Fur also relies on testimony that, testimony that Stalin gave, which he claims is, quote, entirely consistent with the evidence presented by Mark Janssen and Nikita Petrov in their 2002 biography of Yuzhov. Um, Janssen and Petrov's understanding of the matter is, however, extremely different. Their biography is called uh, Stalin's Loyal Executioner, People's Commander Nikolai Yuzhov. Once again, Fur does not mention, much less address, evidence that might support Khrushchev's allegations, nor does he engage with alternative interpretations of the evidence that he does present. However, later in the book, Fur does have a long methodological discussion in which he discusses inter alia why he does not necessarily dismiss evidence from confessions that were or may have been coerced through torture, and why he does not regard what Khrushchev said in the secret speech as valid evidence. The short version of this argument is that a tortured person may be telling the truth, and that Khrushchev was rarely truthful. Maybe we should start off with a little context so that people who don't know their Russian history might have a little context. What, Leslie, what exactly specifically took place during the mass repression campaign of the late 30s? Basically, people were accused of being enemies of the people, and they were often just taken in the middle of the night. They were often people who had been very loyal to Stalin, and they would then get um, just taken away. They always uh, came at night, and people who thought they might be liable, like if they were in the party, because it's the party people who got hit the hardest, 
breakfast. They would like have their uh, clothes all ready to go, and they would be held, you know, taken away, be held in um, maybe first a prison or a holding place, and eventually maybe sent off into the Far East, you know, where it was cold, and, and they were put to work. And that was part of what became known as the Gulag, the system of labor camps. And, you know, there was generally no rhyme or reason for this. And it was partly there There were quotas. There were quotas that, you know, we, we have the um, evidence for each area, sort of provincial area. There were numbers that had to be met. And the, uh, so if you were, you know, in the uh, particular uh, office that was in charge of this, you had to be the one to you know, pick people who were going to be taken. Some of them were shot outright. There were, there were two sets of conditions. You could either be, you know, immediately shot or you sent to the gulag to the camp mass repression about how many people are we referring to the, the number that i think has become the most used one is eight hundred thousand. i think that's about right i mean it's about what you see in most of the textbooks and you know they just they were taken they were shoved into trains you know kind of very much like the holocaust some of them of course didn't survive and of course this there already been operations like this i mean the worst the first and i guess one of the worst ones was the, the what they called the, the kulak operation and that was for so-called rich peasants which you know, were a figment of the regime's imagination. This is in the early 30s, and they were taken, mostly men were picked up, shoved into the trains, and dumped off somewhere, you know, in the middle of nowhere. So that's all part of it. That's the best to, cons- to look at it as, as different waves of repressions. And am I right that there are different terms people use for this, the mass repressions of the late 30s? Is the, it might be called the Great Terror or the Great Purge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and they, you know, it, it developed as, you know, writers started to get more access to um, archives and things. And now in 2020, is there a general consensus amongst historians about what happened during the mass repressions of the 30s? I think so. I mean, it, there was a time um, when there were really, really heavily disputed arguments, you know, at the conferences, the, the scholarly conferences, and you don't hear that anymore. So I think there is kind of a consensus that has been um, gelling in recent years. And, and what accounts for that consensus? I mean, is it new evidence? Yeah, I think so. The archival evidence. So Groverfer doesn't deny that any of these things happened during the mass repressions, but he claims that Stalin was not responsible for any of them, that they were the result of some kind of rightist, Trotskyist conspiracy. Do you think there's any evidence for that kind of claim? No, and I think that it was, it's sort of like what people are talking about now when, um, you know, some of these people who are, are writing about martial law and everything and, um, and and Trumpism, and they anticipate, you know, what to do. And, you know, the, Stalin doesn't have to, like, crack a whip and say, do it. They anticipate if they want to stay on the rights of what they consider to be the, the safe side of things. You mean somebody like William Barr does not have to have a conversation in where in which Trump orders him, William Barr knows what he needs to do yeah. to, to please Trump. 
Exactly. So pe- people knew what they needed to do to please Stalin, and they knew that they wanted to stay on that side rather than the other side because of what would happen to them, and so they did what they knew they needed to do. Yeah, so yeah. the living side rather than the dead side, although it never guaranteed you anything, no matter what you did, but at least you would try if you were, you know, trying to uh, be on the, what they considered to be the, the safe side. Right, so that the fact that we don't have, perhaps, evidence of... Stalin issuing a directive. There's no, you know, written directive that has been uncovered to that effect. Just um, well, just that list that I, I mentioned. Um, well, no, there is actually another one. The most famous one, and that evidence uh, came out when I was also working in the archives. The um, directive has a number, the number of zeros and sevens and things. Um, we had to pause the podcast here to look up the number. It's NKVD order number 00447. It's very easy to find on the internet. You can just Google 00447 and mass repression and you'll find it. That was the one specifically that had the quotas, but it was it was in the name of the Politburo. Oh, wow. And who, who, who was the head of the Politburo? Well, it, it was it was de facto Stalin. Yeah. But actually, well, Molotov was, you know, always had these high positions, um, but he was a lackey. So, so there's lists of people to be picked up, and this list is coming down from the Politburo in a document. In the, the list itself indicates that it is a directive of the Politburo. Yeah. Wherein the de, the de facto head of that Politburo is Stalin. I, I, to me, that is decisive evidence. There's nothing more to say. Well, I, you know, I need to go look. I have some of the, I looked at um, some of those documents and I, I have, you know, I should have uh, read more time. I would have uh, looked at some of the books that I've uh, read. Um, but uh, there were, I mean, there were different, um, there were a number of these kinds of lists, but um, there were the one that was kind of the most sickening, you know, to me was the one that had just how many, the numbers, how many for this region and how many for that region region you know and so the uh, people of those regions they had three there would be three political officers in charge of these things and so they had to it was a troika you know threesome and they had to make the decisions so not a job that right people would necessarily want um i mean do you you take these confessions in which the these guys basically uh, um Oh no, the confessions were coerced, of course. Right, the co- the the confessions are coerced, and what about Fur's statement? Well, you know, coerced confession could still be true. What do, what do you think about that? Well, the the torture was. I mean, most of these things were coerced through torture, sleep deprivation, especially, and you know, that's they'll give what they want. So you're saying that if somebody's tortured, uh, it's likely that they will say things that the torturers want to hear to stop the torture. Uh, And so that is itself evidence that it's untrue. It might not be 100% dispositive, but it is relevant evidence that we should be skeptical of the truth value of what's contained in the confession. Yeah, and, and sometimes people confess to save a relative. Like, they would, you know, you know if I confess this, will you will you protect my son or something? So just to be clear here, this isn't just a, a case of saying, well, Stalin must have known this happened um, because she was in charge of the government when all this stuff was happening. Or not just a case of saying, well, people did this to please Stalin because they intuited that he wanted this to happen. But 
there's actual documentary evidence that Stalin ordered um, this these purges and that he knew about this order 00447, right? They did sign it. They checked their names off. They would go, you know, pass this paper around. Oh, wow. It doesn't only say Politburo and here's the list of who to pick up, but each individual on the Politburo checked their name off. Yeah. Hmm. So they're all individually culpable. Yeah. Wow. We're going to post a link to this document in the podcast description, as well as information about other secret cables between Stalin and Yuzhov about the planning for the, the mass repressions of the 30s. Lastly, the mass repressions targeted not just political enemies, but also a lot of ethnic groups as well, right? It was called the Kulak Operation. That was one of its nicknames. Um, but they also pretty much got almost every priest that was still alive and others. I mean, there were they had different subgroups. I mean, they had within that, it was the Polish Operation because there were, you know, a lot of Poles who had uh, left Poland. There was a German operation and a slew of other nationality operations. So yeah, there was a whole lot in that. It was very complex. Well, let's move on. We did research some of the other crazy things that Grover Fur claims. And one of them is what Fur characterizes as Stalin's struggle for democratic reform. Uh, in 2005, he published a two-part article in Cultural Logic, a Maoist theoretical journal, uh, about this. And he outlined what he called Stalin's attempts from the 1930s until his death to democratize the government of the Soviet Union. Uh, and he asserted that the facts discussed in his article, quote, helped to disprove the helped to disprove the interpretation of Stalin as a power-hungry dictator, betrayer of Lenin's legacy. Uh, Fur argues that Stalin wanted to get the Communist Party out of the job of running the country, have that turnover to the Soviets, uh, and Fur says, quote, uh, Fur says that Stalin, quote, raised the fight against bureaucratism with great vigor as early as his report to the 17th Party Congress uh, in January 1934, uh, and that Stalin seems to have achieved his aim with the 1936 Soviet Constitution, uh, which called for contested elections and, you know, universal secret elections. But first says there was a lot of resistance to this within the party leadership, uh, and so the contested elections that Stalin was in favor of were canceled and never held. Um, and he goes through additional attempts, allegedly, by Stalin to continue his effort to democratize uh, the Soviet Union. Um, Stalin approved a draft of a document, uh, a draft to the Central Committee, wherein the, the party would be legally distanced from power. Uh, that was in 1944. Um, and he goes through a number of facts which basically indicate that Stalin um, was trying to split the party from the uh, the, the, the the Politburo from the the, the, the the government. So he wanted the party, to, the government. Yeah, he wanted the party to do party things and the government to do uh, government things. Um, 
And so, for instance, in 1952, uh, Stalin called for the replacement of the Politburo, uh, which had both party and government members, and he wanted a presidium uh, wherein uh, there were no reserved seats for top government officials uh, in a party, you know, presidium. Uh, Stalin at that time resigned from the post of general secretary uh, of the party, uh, and he proposed that he would resign from the Central Committee altogether, remaining only as head of state. So he was like saying, I'll do government things, not uh, party things. Um, and th there's a little bit more in, on, in the article, um, but not much. Uh, and the article basically has nothing to say about any other evidence related to the issue of democratic reform, uh, and it does not engage with any alternative interpretations of the evidence uh, that it does present, the, the large bulk of which I've uh, just summarized here. Yeah, well, you know, it's just, to me, democratic reform can mean so many different things. It can be defined so many ways. And so it's, it's you know, what, what, what exactly do they mean? That's what I wonder. Okay. So, yeah, there are different meanings of the words democratic reform. But would you say that the evidence that he presents is sufficient to justify Fur's conclusion that Stalin persistently attempted to democratize the government of the Soviet Union? Well, the, you know, the words were always there. There were various projects. Or that announced that were announced to, to do that, but you know it doesn't mean it happened. <laughs> right, and Fur has uh, you know the interpretation that it didn't happen because Stalin was not an, a power-hungry dictator, and he didn't have enough power and authority to get his democratic reforms through. They had the, the, the new constitution that was going to have uh, secret uh, contested elections and won the constitution, but then the elections were called off and they didn't take place. Is that a reasonable interpretation uh, of what took place? Mm, I think I, I think it was it was just words to try to uh, impress people or just but not that he had no intention of really doing it. And and why why do you say that? I mean, what's what's the evidence that it was was just words? You know, it didn't happen. These reforms, so-called, didn't happen. And some of the things that were touted as reforms were weren't really. And what about? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what Grover Fur would say. Well, you know, this is what Stalin wanted, but he wasn't able to make it happen because of resistance within opponents or people with different views uh, in, in, in the leadership. Yeah, well, I'm not, that, those are, you'd have to really dig deep to find some kind of evidence for that, I think. Um, you know, individuals rebelling against against it. So there's just so, when you get to that, there's so much hearsay. For, for further arrive at that kind of conclusion, is it also a matter of just ignoring other evidence and context? Yeah, I, I, I assume so. You know, you earlier talked about people being regularly spied on and having the substance of their discussions transcribed and reported to authorities. To me, that just says this is not a democratic country. You're not free to speak. So, I mean, what was Stalin's attitude to that? Is that relevant evidence to whether he wanted to uh, turn uh, the USSR into a democracy? Yeah, well, he could call it a reform, and, you know, it's, even though it's, we wouldn't consider it to be a reform. Um, so, like I say, it's, it's, sometimes it's just words. 
if you get that, uh, my meaning there. I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, words means that they have no intention of doing it, but you could have an intention of holding contested elections in a situation where, you know, the opposition cannot uh, function freely and you're going to rig the election. And so you got a contested election and uh, the, that could be called democratization, but it's not any kind of democratization that I would care about. Right, right. Looking at the larger context of what Stalin was doing at the time in the mid nineteen, the mid yeah nineteen thirties, would you say that that he was on a project to institute real, genuine democracy with you know individual liberty and real debate and oppositions that were able to contest for power, or was he not about that at all? No, I say the latter. <laughs> well, let me let me ask it this way. He, he, he puts forward certain facts. He concludes that this is sufficient evidence. You say it's not sufficient evidence because it could be just words. Okay, good. Do you have any evidence from other things you know that were happening at the time, before or after, to suggest that it was just words? Well, let's see, this might be a little earlier. No, this would be the 30s. Um, there was there was a big discussion about abortion. And so people were invited to uh, send in their opinion. Should it remain legal or should it be outlawed? And apparently a lot more people wanted it to remain legal. And that's not what happened. So I think that might be one example. So the, the idea there was basically something sort of like a referendum process or at least uh, a promise that the uh, authorities would do what the people wanted and then they didn't. Right. I mean, genuine democratic reform, one would think, would involve a sort of society where critics were free to voice dissent um, and had, you know, free to form alternative power blocks in society, uh, were free from persecution for their dissent. Was there any space for that in, you know, in Stalin's Russia or, you know, what happened to people who tried to make space for that? Could anyone actually legitimately contest an election or contest decisions made by Stalin? There really wasn't anyone who was going to contest it, except in those, some of those early cases in the um, 20s and 30s, where right. where the ones who were, like Rutin, a, a really fine guy who wrote this big manifesto against Stalin. And of course, you can imagine what happened to him. What happened to him? Oh, he and his whole family were murdered. For speaking out against Stalin? Yeah, and it was pretty direct very explicit, you know, like we have to get rid of Stalin sort of writing. Right. And so they got rid of him for that reason. Yeah. And, and well, and then, you know, it was when the purges started to really pile up, you know, the rest of the family. So they liquidated him and, and his, his family. Yeah. Not all at the same time. No. So is that something that you would regard as relevant to the question of whether Stalin was trying to democratize the USSR? <laughs> Why doesn't Fur bring in something like that into this discussion? Yeah, well, it just was inconvenient, I suppose. In just a few moments, we'll return to our interview with Leslie Rimmel. First... A few words from Anja Clard of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors our podcast. Hello, this is Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. 
Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. Leslie, as we all know, there's been a real upswing in the the amount of denialism in our culture, everything from denialism of the Holocaust to denialism of the reality around 9-11 to you know, denial of climate change um, to the sort of the daily assault on reality that is Trumpism. Um, would you put Grobefer's work into that same category of denialism? Well, as, as far as I can tell, I mean, I haven't read as much as you probably have his work. I've What I have read, I didn't find all that helpful. But uh, yeah, I think there's definitely denialism there uh, from what I've read. Well, Leslie, I mean, you, you may have encountered various species of denialism, you know, connected with Russia, connected with whatever in your career as a, as a historian. I always just wonder, and like your view, why do you think there is this urge to deny unpleasant realities on the part of many people? Is that just like a constant of human nature? Uh, or is there something, some aspect of current society that's exacerbating this problem? Well, I think it could be both. Um, I mean, I guess that's a cop-out. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I, I don't think the majority of people are deniers, which is, you know, a good thing. Um, I think that we are more and more trying to ensure in, in education that people see what 
is what, you know, so there are all kinds of Holocaust seminars and everything. Um, and Holocaust education is, is widely happening in, in, in schools and et cetera. But yeah, I, I think it's just people, it's kind of lazy thinking, you know, denialism. And also though, there is this aspect that it just, these things happen that do seem incredible, you know, incredible, not believable. And so it makes it a little bit easier for, for people who tend not to believe in that things could go bad, go badly, you know, but they do. And we, we find that we're finding that out here, that uh, it's, it's not always smooth sailing. Look, we've got the pandemic and everything around it. So I think there are psychological and um, educational issues. Right. And you, you mentioned the Holocaust and Holocaust denial is a huge you know, issue. And 20 years ago, uh, Deborah Lipstadt, a historian at Emory University, uh, successfully defended herself against a libel charge uh, by this guy Irving, a Holocaust denier. And recently, you know, she entered into this discussion about what we can do about denialism. And people have various views because a lot of people say, you know, fact-checking doesn't work. And she acknowledges that, you know, putting forward the, quote, historical facts, that's not enough alone to counter denial. But she says the facts are our most important weapon. And I kind of take it that when you were referring to the organizing of seminars and stuff, that, that you would you would agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And to, um, you know, where possible to bring people to see the sites of where these things happened. And uh, no, it's it's uh, definitely, um, definitely very important. And in fact, I was in, invited to be in one of her seminars and uh, I wasn't able to accept just because of my, my retirement. <laughs> You know, looking at you know, you, know, you, you Google Grover Fur, you see he's written like twelve books, and they're all like the same kind of thing. Trotsky lied, Khrushchev lied, everybody lied. Uh, I'm gonna guess that a lot of these like internet Stalinists, who are like probably like between the ages of like sixteen and twenty four, don't even read his books. Just, but they just the fact that there's a person who is written them lets them justify their positions and they probably like have read some glosses of his books you know so they're probably not very sophisticated thinkers in the first place but 16 year old stalinists i mean they, well, what is a 16 year old doing thinking about stalin i mean they should have other things on their mind well that's right. what we that's what i thought until we did this interview with these two kids back in uh, the, the spring and one of you know they were saying like one of the most influential like stalinist blogger youtube video persons was like a teenager I, I had no idea this was a thing but the internet is brings us all kinds of strange things just but so young i mean i just yeah. uh, it's sort of strange yeah i mean so so given the cert that certain people seem to be immune to facts other people are scratching their heads trying to think through what else can possibly be done to combat denialism. I mean, there's a lot of suggestions out there. For instance, Robert P. Kreese, who's a philosopher and historian of science, 
Uh, he suggested that one way to fight science denial is to expose it through comedy and ridicule. Do you think that this or anything else might be effective in combating Stalinist denialism? Well, like I say, reading some of these books, some of which are very beautifully written, might help, you know, if, if they will read, um, because that's always a question. And um, it, it's, it's tough. You've got to keep trying. You've got to open their eyes. Yeah, we, so we were referring to Deborah, Deborah Lipstadt, and she says, okay, like the most important thing is to produce the facts and to try to get people acquainted with the facts. But she also says there is another uh, weapon in our arsenal, you know, to, to combat denial. And she says that that's quick and forceful condemnation by scholars, political and religious leaders, and other people of stature, of denial and deniers. Uh, and what I found most interesting is that she said there must be condemnation of both hardcore and softcore denial. And obviously what she means by hardcore denial in like the present context is somebody like Grover Fur. But what she means by softcore denial isn't coming right out and saying, no, Stalin didn't do any of that. It, roughly speaking, it's whataboutism, it's deflection. Um, you know, if you're, we're talking about evidence Evidence of Stalinism's crimes against humanity, who deflect by reciting despicable actions of Western capitalist countries or otherwise ch try to change the subject. And when I think about it, for every hardcore denier like Grover Fur, there are dozens of softcore deniers like Rick Wolf. Uh, he's a popular pro-Stalinist economics professor. And they, 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 they don't say, no, Stalin didn't do these things. They, they engage in whataboutism, they engage in deflection. Um, so, do you think that quick and forceful condemnation might do some good, like not only against Holocaust denial, but against this, you know, tanky resurgence of Stalinism was just peachy keen stuff. Oh yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, if you, you know, just get on to it and so that they don't have other competing options in their heads, get it sooner. And then, you know, maybe when they see the opposite, they will think, oh, OK, that's that's not right. Ah, so you can't combat something with nothing. So you got to be out there with something. That's that's brilliant. That's brilliant. No, that's brilliant. <laughs> no, no, that's brilliant. I love it. I love it. All right. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just, it's, to me, though, it's still kind of odd that, you know, there are these, there are young Stalinists. Yeah, and we're getting a lot of people who say, oh, don't worry about them. You know, you do crazy things. They hotwire cars and, you know, they got weird hairstyles and, you know, these people are not big enough to be an immediate threat to us. And I'm like, all cancers start small. Yeah. They, they, there's a lot of toleration uh, of this. And, and we've even gotten, you know, on our own website pushing back against, uh, you know, our condemnation of like that that panel that, that I was on, you know, by people by people who would never say that they're 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 Stalinists, but th there's just like this this toleration of it. Yeah, well, just uh, keep pushing, keep pushing. Uh, Leslie, thank you for being on Radio Free Humanity today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. This is my first podcast, and I enjoyed it. <laughs> Good. Well, that's all the time we have in the podcast today. You've been listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist podcast. As always, if you like the podcast, please do subscribe to the podcast, put it on your RSS feed, share it on social media. We would love to hear from you. So please do write and tell us what you think.